The scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 47. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them. And he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and, the, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he or she had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of God. We've been looking at the core values of Metro. And we've been saying that when the gospel becomes central to an individual, the notion of church community becomes vital. Now, I want to give you some context. This passage takes place immediately after the Apostle Peter, his first public presentation. And, and verse 41 says that around 3,000 people were added to the number. Now, if you understand this context, that's a growth rate of almost 3,000%. And the momentum is not slowing down. It's actually beginning. It's actually growing. Because in verse 47, the Lord added to that number daily. Now, in time, that number sweeps through the Roman Empire despite persecution, despite suffering, despite death. How? How did that happen? Because Peter's first sermon, I mean, it was, it was his first sermon. It wasn't the greatest sermon. It actually had some flaws. And yet, in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. What that means is that the Holy Spirit was performing spiritual surgery in these people, and he gave them new life, and they received the gospel. They received the gospel. And immediately, the result is verses 42 to 47. The formation of a new humanity, a new community that God had been promising since the days of the Old Testament so that this loose collection of people this loose collection of people from all over the world became a body. They became one, and they flourished. Now, this wasn't a cultural thing. It's a new humanity. It's not a, a racial thing. It's a new race. It's not a social thing. This is a mission. It wasn't a traditional thing. These people have been given new life. New life. In other words... If a desire to deeply plug into the life 
of your church, into the life of your community, is not evident. Now, the operative word there is evident. If it's not evident in your life, you may not be a Christian. You may not be a follower of Jesus. What that means is that you can, you can know your Bible really well. You can grow up in a culture of people who are consistently praying to God. You can even sincerely believe that you desire to know God. But until you cross that bridge into a deep connection with the body of Christ, as a fruit of your faith, as a fruit of your love for Jesus, you may still only be confusing your piety with a life-giving faith in Jesus. You get what I'm saying? This passage is going to teach us that if the gospel becomes central to a body of believers, it does four remarkable things in the context of community. Four things. One, it's going to give us a transcendent oneness. Two, a very practical oneness. Three, a missional oneness. And four, the power for real oneness in Jesus. A oneness that's going to be transcendent, at the same time practical, but missional, and yet powerful. All right? First, we're going to look at transcendent oneness, verses 42 to 47. It's it's radical. These people, they're committed to each other. They're worshiping. They're inviting each other into each other's homes. They're, They're sharing a spiritual experience, and they're learning together, and they're caring for each other, and they're breaking bread, and they're praising God. And that movement, that momentum is growing So in verse 43, there's great awe when they're together. In other words, they're sensing, anytime they're together, they're sensing God's presence. I mean, are you like that when you're with other church people? Are you sensing the presence of God when you're together? I mean, who are these people that are growing together and experiencing the awe of God together? Remember, when Peter addressed this crowd, it wasn't your typical Jerusalem crowd. Very strategic. It was during the time of Pentecost. Very important, one of the most important feasts in the Jewish tradition. And so there were people from all over the world present in Jerusalem at the time. Early in the chapter, it says, Jews from every nation under heaven were present. In other words, it was very diverse. There were many cultures represented, many nations represented. They had little in common. In fact, there was no common language, no common culture, no common preferences. There was no common socioeconomic class. There wasn't any common geography, any common race, but here they are in each other's home every night eating together and worshiping together. This is so important. It's so important because look around. Look around at our country. We live in a fragmented society and we live in a divided nation. And yet we have more in common as citizens of our country here than in this passage. And yet look at this passage. Look at the remarkable warmth. Look at the remarkable oneness here. See, on one hand, Christianity is the most exclusive faith in the world because we claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to really know God, and yet Christianity is the most inclusive faith, the most diverse faith, because anyone, if they believe, can come. I mean, think about this. To this day, to this day, the center of Judaism is where? It's in Israel. The center of of Islam is where? It's in the Middle East. The center of Buddhism, Taoism, 
is where? It's in East Asia. The center of Catholicism is where? It's in Rome. But where is the center of the Christian faith? I mean, it started in the Near East, moved over to Africa, moved over to Europe, and uh, then over to the New World. And then from the New World, now you can say it's probably in South America and in Africa and spreading like crazy in China. There is no center of the Christian faith because Christians have been so welcoming, so inviting. Christianity didn't just appeal to any particular ethnicity, but to the poor and to the disfranchised, to the rich, to the powerful, even to the emperor himself. Why? Because in Christianity, a oneness develops that transcends all human barriers to community. Typical barriers to to real community become like nothing in the Christian faith. Now, the implications of that are important. Why? Because at Metro, we have people in medicine and people who are in the legal profession. We have people who consult for billion-dollar companies and then people who have their own businesses. We have people from the city in Philadelphia. And then we have people from the suburbs of Philadelphia. We have people who live and desire to live in the countryside. We have people from across the bridge in Cherry Hill. We have people who vote red. We have people who vote blue. Look at the pattern that you see here. The gospel renders things that easily divide people, easily divide societies, renders them very little in importance. Now, that gives us a challenge. Do you practice intimacy with people who are very different from you in your church, in your life, on a regular basis? Do you have people whom the gospel has brought close that before you would have stayed away from, but now you can't imagine life without? Or are you resistant to being shaped by other people in the church unless it's on your terms? Because if that's the case, then you haven't yet experienced a transcendent oneness. Now, the second thing, we talk about a transcendent oneness, but it's also very practical. It's also very applicative. What did these people do? And I want to kind of rattle this off in a way. If you look at what they did together versus what we today value about community, versus when we think community, I'm saying we at Metro, when we think community, a lot of times I'm, I'm afraid to say that it's very different from what these people practiced here. Number one, they studied God's word. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That eventually is what became the New Testament. The text means that they came together and studied and heard the apostles. They reflected together. They consumed the Bible. They discussed it. They digested it. Secondly, they loved each other. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. That's very intentional here in the Bible because what it says is they didn't just devote themselves to fellowship, to hanging out and just being together. It was to the fellowship. What that means is they worked at oneness together. They worked at it. Even in a church our size, people are now starting to gather and migrate towards like dissolving like. 
people who are like each other just being attracted to one another. But if you really study what's going on in the church and what makes the gospel community so remarkable is that they work at oneness, a new humanity. And so it's not just about growing socially. Remember, the first Christians, the earliest Christians culturally were very socially involved people. They were a socially involved community. They are already used to doing things together. That's not what this is about. Many of us view community as a cultural thing. We're we're kind of shaped by our cultural upbringing, living together, being near each other, hanging out together, doing things together. But what you see here is people putting in the time intentionally to knead the yeast of grace into whatever it is that they're doing. What that means is, They're committed on not giving up on each other and intentionally putting aside their differences. That means every week, retooling and rethinking and re-strategizing ways to put aside your distinctives that could potentially harm the community, potentially damage each other, rather than trying to assert as if you are right, rather than trying to assert your values and beliefs, putting it aside and learning and listening. What that means is surrendering things that each person values about community, calling out things that each person values about community, especially if it's for selfish person, uh, purposes, selfish fulfillment. The reason why they do this is because so that the gospel would advance in the context of community. What we're saying is that gospel oneness would take hold. And so the gospel and the kingdom is the end. The kingdom is the end, not just your own fulfillment and, 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 and end to your loneliness, you see? Verse 44, they're all together. They had everything in common. Remarkable because they're so different. They came from every other nation, and yet they came together. They were all together. They had everything in common. Verse 45, they bore each other's burdens. They stopped hiding their flaws. They confessed their sins. They were honest about their sins. In fact, there's a greater focus when the gospel heals you and you know that you've been, you're set free from your sin. It's easy to become honest about the things that you've been set free by and also to work through and help each other work through the things that you're still struggling with. And as a result, these people became disarming. They became welcoming. They became winsome. Thirdly, they worshiped together. Verse 42, in the Greek, it doesn't say they broke bread and prayed. It says they were devoted to the breaking of bread and prayer. In other words, they were committed to the Lord's Supper regularly. They were committed to communion regularly. Worship had an order, that means. Worship had a structure. And through it, verse 42, they heard the word. Verse 43, they shared a common experience and the presence of God. Verse 46, they met and they did this regularly. They did it every day in the temple courts. This is the end of self-reliance. It's the end of selfishness. It's the end of snobbishness. That's what they did. That's how it can be practical. Uh, Thirdly, it was missional. Verses 44 to 45, there was deed ministry throughout the community, whether it was by the apostles or by everybody else around. They gave and they gave and they gave. They sold possessions to continue to give so that not a single person, they were so generous, not a single person among them was poor. And then there was word ministry right before that, verse 42 to 43. Just another way of saying that the apostles taught and led. In other words, daily applying oneness made them generous. 
and daily as a result, God added to them. God added to them as a fruit of missional growth. You know, we have a powerless church today in our world, in our city. A powerless church today. Philadelphia boasts the most churches, my understanding, the most churches per capita in the city than in any other part of the country. And the average number of churches, again, it's anecdotal. My understanding is that the average number of churches uh, around the country, in the country, is about 30. Our churches are dying. We have a powerless church in our world today, in our city today, that says, what? People who are just driven by anxiety and depression saying, I need to build my own life. I need to build my own family. I need to build my own house first. Then I'll give. You'll never give. That's called, that's the someday giving, right? And then we complain why there's no renewal in our lives and we get frustrated. And that's, that's when the fighting happens and the complaining and the grumbling. Why did the Lord add daily to this number? And it's because the church was winsome. It was sacrificial. It placed God's kingdom as the end ahead of their own gain and their own desires, their own needs, And that became visible. It was palpable. It was experienced. It was understood. People saw it. And they were so attracted. They were so attractive as a community. People flocked to the church. They were so welcoming of people who were oftentimes marginalized by the church that those marginalized people found a home, found a place. Why? Because these people found a home and a place in Christ, in God's own kingdom. They were just making it practical. In our de-churched, community here at Metro, I'm, I'm very happy and pleased that Metro consists of many people who walked away from the church. The last survey that we had done, four out of five people who walked in through the doors of Metro, and it wasn't very long ago that we took the survey, so it still stands. Four out of every five people, person, uh, people that walked through the doors of our church claim to have been away from the church at least three years on the average. That's a huge, that's, that's an amazing thing. Because while churches are depleting and while people are leaving the church, we have a group of people in our community that have returned from being out there and said, you know what, I want to consider walking into the church again. Maybe they've experienced church hurt. Maybe they've experienced just burnout. Um, Maybe it just wasn't something that that was clicking with them when they were younger. And they say, you know what, I want to check this out again. I want to come back. Lots of church planting scholars and commentators say, What is going to keep this community here? Metro, you have to hear this. What is going to keep a de-churched community staying here? And the conclusion is only a real message with real, authentic, genuine people will keep them. You need real teaching. You need real people. Real honesty. Sharing real truths about themselves real truths about what the Lord is doing in them. A missional winsomeness. You're not just sharing it to get things off your chest. There is a winsomeness that comes as a fruit of our love for Christ because we've been set free from our sins. And that yields growth, fruit. That's why the church gathered then. That's why we should be gathering now. Why do you gather? What is it that you're looking for? Why do you gather? And what is the power? What is the power to become missional? What is the power to be able to practically demonstrate all these things? 
the way uh, we see described here in this passage and prescribed here in this passage? What do we see uh, that makes us a transcendent, that enables and empowers a transcendent oneness? Verse 46, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. That means that they met and gathered. They, they heard the word of God. They practiced the word of God. They applied the word of God in their homes. And why? Verses 46 to 47. They had glad and sincere hearts that praised God. Now think about this. When you see something amazing, when you hear something beautiful, when you experience something remarkable in your life, the first thing, the natural thing that we are called to do, it's not even a calling. The natural thing, it's built into our spiritual DNA. The natural thing that you want to do is to share it so that the experience of seeing someone else respond to that which you find beautiful completes your joy. I didn't say that. C.S. Lewis said that. It's why when you watch a good movie, you want to tell other people about it. It's why when you hear an amazing song, you want to share it. It's why when you experience something or someone beautiful, you want them to meet that person. You have to share it. It's why Christians had to get together back then. They just had to get together. They had to share what was going on. When you're hurting, when you're suffering, a true Christian friend is not someone who's going to just come alongside you and give you cold comfort. They're going to remind you of the gospel. They're going to say, I mean, not like this, but they're going to say, I want you to look to the one, to worship the one that's been broken for you in your brokenness. Because I want you to see that this suffering is going to come to an end. There is, there is meat to this truth that suffering will come to an end. There is victory here. Even though right now you're broken, there is victory here. That's why they were so devoted to the breaking of bread. Why they were so devoted to the Lord's Supper. You know why? Because in our own suffering, it reminds us that Jesus Christ was broken for us. How do you confront each other? When you confront somebody, it's the hardest thing to do sometimes. You confront somebody you know that is in sin or damaging the community. You say, look, you are, you are breaking things in our community. You see that? And if you do, it's something that only the Holy Spirit can kind of uncover your eyes to see. If you see it, then all the more you will see that Jesus Christ died for your sin. Look to Jesus. Heal in Jesus. It's going to burst in praise. It's going to burst everyone in praise. You can only do this in the context of community. Now, if you look to Jesus as merely a teacher or an example or a leader, you will never see his beauty. If you look to Jesus as just your king or just your God, you might miss his beauty. But if you look to Jesus as the one who died for you, the one who loved the church as his bride and died for her, it's going to make Jesus an absolute beauty. It's going to make Jesus the most beautiful. And then you're going to need the church. You're going to desire the church. You're going to become, you yourself will become devoted to the fellowship. Otherwise, you're always going to just want church on your terms. A little bit of church here, this part of the church there, while you reject other things about the church. And you're going to be stuck. It's almost like a spiritual arrested development. I'm telling you, because of the widespread number of people who grew up in the church, 
who are in our community, there's a lot of arrested development going on. And one of the ways that you can tell the difference between somebody who loves the church because of their love for Jesus versus loving the church on their own terms is by their devotion to the life of the church, the fellowship, what moves the church, the people that the church is drawing in, the people who are being shaped by the church. I know. I know that there are people here who've been hurt by the church in the past. So you're kind of reluctant to dip your toes in the water. You're kind of just kind of wading uh, your toes in the water a little bit. But what you're really doing over time, if it continues on, and that's okay. I mean, if anything, Metro is a place where you can do that. But there are people in this church who are holding their devotion to the fellowship ransom on their own terms. And what you're saying is, I'm not going to plug in unless this church meets my criteria. I'm not going to plug in unless this, this church meets this criteria. Or because I dislike this person, I can, I'm going to withhold fellowship because I dislike this person or I dislike that person. When you should be plugging into the life of the church because of the absolute beauty of Jesus. The absolute beauty of Jesus. That's the only way you're going to heal. A lot of us are just hurting and hurting and hurting. After a while, after years... We're still using the the hurt. It's because you haven't healed. You're just kind of covering over the wound and you're not treating the wound. You're not letting people look into the wound and see the wound, dress the wound, clean the wound. Why does Jesus, or how can Jesus become beautiful for us? Who is Jesus? Jesus Christ was betrayed by his friends. He was rejected by the religious, rejected by civil authorities, he was capped out, cast out of every ring. He was cast out of every fellowship. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means, hey, I'm going to be rejected by people. I'm going to be rejected by my own friends. But now I have been rejected by the one who is at one with me. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There is a true oneness. Our oneness is really a reflection of the oneness of Christ the Son and God his Father. And yet on the cross, he says, my God, you have forsaken me. You have forsaken me. I have been cast out of your ring, which means that I have been cast out of life. Life with a capital L. I have lost life. Before Jesus died physically, he died spiritually. He died, he died soulfully on the cross. He died totally alone. Totally alone. Jesus Christ, who had complete oneness with the Father, but on the cross, the Father broke fellowship with him, cast his son out, and there the wrath of God poured out on Jesus. Why? Jesus Christ was rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus Christ lost oneness with the Father so that we could have oneness We could enjoy oneness. And yet, do you know, even while he was suffering, even while he was cast out, he was uttering the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting, he was citing, referencing Psalm 22. You know what that means? Jesus Christ was still on the cross worshiping the Father. He was devoted. He was devoted to God's truth, still applying it in his life, making it a part of his narrative. He wasn't breaking bread. You know why? Because he was the bread that was broken. And he was praying for us to the end. My God, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And when you see Jesus Christ still devoted to the word, still devoted to his church, still devoted to the very Father, still devoted to all the people who had rejected him, 
still devoted to the fellowship and still loving those around, still loving the people around in a sacrificial way, giving and giving and giving everything that he had. It's not like he was just saying, Father, I can only take so much more. He was on the cross refusing in many ways anesthesia so that he can have everything, all the wrath of God poured out because of his love for his people. Every ounce of his life, every ounce of his blood poured out. That was the extent of his giving. And when you see him doing that for you, you see the absolute beauty of Jesus. Then you can't just be indifferent to people that you dislike in the church. You can't just be indifferent to the people who are coming into the church that you don't connect with. You can't be indifferent. You can't just be indifferent to people because they look different than you, because they may be, they make different types of money than you, because they have different status than you. Maybe they don't give, maybe you wouldn't hang out with them normally, but that's the beauty of community. That's the beauty and the remarkable uh, beauty of gospel community because it represents the king of heaven communing and reconciling with sinners. The beauty of Jesus drives the breaking of all barriers, racial, social, socioeconomic, personality, status, humor, and it leaves you, it bursts you in joyful praise. Now, before I close, I'm going to say one thing. If you say you love the gospel, then you have to love gospel community. Because Jesus Christ, the bearer of the gospel, loved his church. He lo- you have to, your love, it's a very, the word love is a very strong word. You got to remember that Jesus Christ died for his community that to show the extent of his love. If you say you love the gospel, but you don't, you dismiss certain types of people in the church, certain leaders in the church, certain community group members in your community group, then the gospel really hasn't shaped you. It doesn't have teeth. If you say you love community but reject certain teachings, certain values, dismiss certain approaches in ministry, and you only take in teaches, teachings that you like, teachings that you agree with, teachings that are, are really coming on your own terms, then I question, do you really love the gospel? Do you really love community? Because that isn't radical. That, isn't, that doesn't contribute to the new humanity that God promised. Plug into the teaching. Plug into the fellowship. Devote yourselves to the breaking of prayer. That's worship. Devote yourself to worship and prayer to complete your joy. There's a, a guy in our church years ago who kind of dipped his toe in and out as soon as church would end. Before the closing prayer, he'd be gone. He would come in, leave. And there were times and pockets of time where he just stopped coming altogether. This was very, very early on in our church. It wasn't until somebody told him, look, you can't just go once or twice. I want you to go for six months. Six months, don't miss a Sunday. See what it does. And so he committed to those six months. And 
now he's serving as a leader in our church, fully bought into the gospel as it shaped him and gave him new life. It begins with new life. And as you come in union with Christ, God brings you into this supernatural union with his church. You will love his church. Will you devote yourselves to the fellowship more? In Christ's name, in Christ's name will you do that.